I'm Philippa Nuttall, Environment Editor at The New Statesman, and you're listening to a special episode of World Review in partnership with the Club of Rome and the BMW Foundation. In this episode, we're marking 50 years of the Club of Rome's Limits to Growth report. This was the first report that made clear that there was a limit to how much the Earth could cope with in terms of industrialization and use of natural resources. Now, 50 years on, we're going to look at how much notice the world took of that report and what is happening today to create a new social and economic paradigm that will help the world live more in tune with natural resources. Joining me to discuss the report and where we are 50 years on is Sandrine Dixon-Declève, co-president of the Club of Rome, Kate Rayworth, a British economist who created the concept of the donut economics, and Tim Jackson, a British economist from the University of Surrey. Welcome all, thank you very much for being with us today. Sandrine, to start with, perhaps you could just give us a quick overview of what exactly the, the Limits to Growth report was and why it was so radical. I think, Philippa, that it came at a time when, obviously, there was a big economic boom in the 1970s. And the report was indicating not necessarily that we needed to have limits to well-being or limits to our lifestyles, but we did need to think through the way in which the constant curve and growth and population would have a stress on natural resources. And what actually the authors did, lead authors uh, in particular, Donella Meadows with her husband Dennis Meadows at the time, and the other lead authors, one of whom actually is still very much alive and thriving and a member of the Club of Rome, Jürgen Randers, wanted to show when they were commissioned by Aurelio Pache, the founder of the Club of Rome, was that actually if you start to look at system dynamic modeling, so the interrelationships between this population growth, the impact on natural resources, also starting to look at the impact on poverty and inequality, that that combination of systems issues would come together and demonstrate through a series of different scenarios that we really were going to start hitting limits hitting limits in terms of access to certain resources. And what I think most of us who are members of the club today, some of whom have been through the club's history, was that over the last 50 years, there have been so many other wake-up calls that have built on these scenarios, that have demonstrated once again that actually we are going far beyond the limits and that humanity has forgotten a little bit its, its role as part of a species rather than overwhelming the planet in terms of its resources. And that now we are faced with those tipping points, these key shocks that actually were already predicted in 1972 in the Limits to Growth report. Now what we know is that in particular in certain countries in in the West, the limits truly did have an impact on some thought leaders and even on some decision makers. But clearly, it didn't have the impact that we all would have wanted, which is already 50 years ago, with that level of foresight, we could have stopped now these tipping points that we're seeing, the tipping point of climate change, the increasing pandemics, because COVID is not the first one, and clearly also the importance that this is going to have, both the pandemics and climate change, and aggravating conflict, which we already have, war on our doorstep with Ukraine, and these feedback loops that we're going to see increasingly between climate change, 
enhancing and creating stress points, for example, access to water, we saw it in Syria, which then actually creates a war. The fact that Ukrainian war is having already an impact on our food and energy systems and the relationship that has also with climate change and decarbonization, these unholy alliances that we've created and dependencies, all of that was already discussed in the limits to growth. Maybe one last point. Last week, we celebrated the Stockholm Plus 50 conference. And I think many of us are incredibly disappointed. This was the moment when leaders could have come together. And actually, the original Stockholm conference opened up with quotes from the limits. Last week's conference was only attended predominantly by environment ministers, not by heads of state. And we did not see some key targets and timetables and commitments coming out of governments at a time when they are so absolutely necessary. Thank you, Sandrine. That's very clear. And Tim, both you and Kate are economists. Is it our economic paradigm which is responsible largely for where we are today and why we haven't listened more to the very clear message that was in the Limits to Growth report? Yes, I think to some extent it is. Economics sits within a culture and the culture that we live in is also to some extent addicted to growth and antagonistic towards the idea of limits. The Club of Rome report was extraordinary in a way because it hit a nerve. It was a bunch of quite young scientists at MIT sitting down with a systems model, doing some basic systems modeling and coming out with a conclusion which you could absolutely go along with when you looked at all the signs that they pointed to and looked at the dynamics of our economy and looked at how we were somehow rushing headlong along this growth path with the sense that there was no end in sight, that we could have all that we wanted. And the extraordinariness of the impact, I think, is characterized for me by the fact that presidents of the most powerful countries in the world would line up to denounce it. Ronald Reagan at one point said, there are no limits to growth because there are no limits to human ingenuity and creativity. And of course, you know, if you think about that, you could agree that there's no limits to human ingenuity. But when you put that together with the, the, the idea that means there's no limits to growth, no limits to expansion of the economy, no limits to the use of resources, it becomes a kind of a nonsense. It becomes a recipe, actually, for a disaster. It becomes a kind of hubris, a sense that we are so clever, so creative and so innovative that we can have overcome all of these problems. They're, they're not real problems. The real problem is to keep growth going, and then we can solve all those problems. And that has been the foundation for economics for the last 150 years, the assumption that it would continue to grow and that whatever came at it in terms of limits would be overcome by human ingenuity and by technology. And that is the path towards progress. It's, it's really interesting when you talk to economists because they, they do question it. And in particular, recently, there's been a sense of, well, I was always told growth really matters, but I couldn't at the time fully understand it when I was a student. I, but you go along with it. It becomes part of the rhetoric. It becomes part of the institutional baggage of being an economist. And at a certain point, you are no longer really allowed to question it. it it became a kind of taboo to question growth and and when you even today even meetings that we had in the european parliament 
there is a sense that we don't want to put growth under question. We don't want to put that under the spotlight. Do we really have to talk about limits? And that's the point, I think, where you realise, yes, it is a part of our economics, but it has become part of our culture. We have imbibed the myth of growth and we are not free of it still at this point in time. And that's, you know, that's the challenge that was put down 50 years ago. And the fact that we haven't made that progress that the Club of Rome was obviously calling for us to make is very much down to the centrality of those ideas in economics and its resistance to thinking about limits. Thanks, Tim. And and Kate, you've come up with a, a different narrative, which does very much question this um, idea of growth. Could you explain to us a little bit what your concept is of the, the donut economics and how it, it offers an alternative way forward for policymakers to think about? Yeah. And so just to build on what Tim was saying, I remember when I studied economics, and I think it's the experience of almost all economic students around the world, the first diagram that you're taught is the supply and demand of the market. Mm -hmm. So economics starts with the market, which is a really interesting political move. That's not a neutral or obvious thing to do. We start on a kind of white background, jump in with the market, it puts price at the center of our vision and anything that falls outside of the price contract gets called an externality. And so we find ourselves, you know, I'm 51 years old, right? So I'm the same age as this report. And I find that crushing, that this is something that still someone of my age is having to explain and talk about as if this was news. It's been around for half a century. And yet still today, students are taught, here's supply and demand. And what that does is it means we talk about the ongoing death of the living world as an environmental externality. And what the Limits to Growth report did was start with a system which put the living world and, and the ways they knew to describe it in those days on the page from the get-go. And they have this curve, it's called pollution, and it rises. Well, now we know a lot more about what that pollution is. And what I think is interesting about the word limits is it could be misunderstood as if, you know, the economy is expanding and then you hit this limit, like you're going to hit this wall and then you just can't go any further. It doesn't work like that. There isn't a limit. What there is, is a delicately balanced living system that gets kicked out of balance. Mm. And that's what the planetary boundaries work from Johan Rockström, Will Stefan and others from 2009. That's what that really profoundly gave us. Oh, here's this delicately balanced life-supporting system that surrounds us. There's not a hard limit. We can go right through it and look what happens when we do. We destabilize the climate. We break down the ecosystems on which life depends. We create a hole in the ozone layer. And so that's what the limits to growth authors, I think, were gesturing at. There's something for pollution. We now have a much, much richer language for it. So when I first saw the planetary boundaries diagram, it was a, it was the most extraordinary adrenaline rush actually for me. It's like, bang, here is the beginning of a new economics. That's what I felt when I saw it. And I saw that the earth system scientists have said, you know, beyond here, we break down the life support systems of our planetary home. I was working at Oxfam at the time. I was sitting in a big open plan office, surrounded by people who were campaigning to raise money for a famine in the Sahel to campaign for the rights of health and education for all children everywhere in the world. And I thought, if there are outer limits of resource use, there are also inner limits. We've been calling them human rights, actually, for you know, 60 years at the time. 
So let's draw them in too. So I drew a circle inside the circle of planetary boundaries. It came out in the shape of a donut, kind with a hole in the middle. And to me, the power that this picture had really surprised me when people first saw it. A lot of people said, I've always thought of sustainable development or prosperity like this. I've never seen the picture before. I want to be part of the, the big movement, the big team who are creating a new economics that's fit for our time. So we don't begin with supply and demand. We start with the values that we stand for. We start with meeting the needs of all people and we do so within the means of the living planet. And so put the donut down. This is what the purpose of the economy is. Not, as Tim was saying, this kind of tacit growth is important. I, we never really discussed it. It's a bit too late to discuss it, a bit weird and, and radical to question it. So let's just go along with it. No, let's reverse that. Let's start day one with the values that matter, meeting the needs of all within the means of the living planet, bang. Now let's ask what kind of economy would give us even half a chance of getting there. And that's what I call donor economics. It's just one way of approaching this. You can put it alongside well-being economics, prosperity without growth, Tim's work. It's all bringing a new starting point and very much in the heritage of the work that the Limits to Growth team opened up and made that space. But it's extraordinary how it's still not an obvious starting point today. Mm. Exactly. And Tim, you mentioned that mm. the, there was an event in the European Parliament. There's still a sort of reticence or a, a concern yeah. of this pushback against growth. And I think we can see it in the reactions of various leaders to the current crises, the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, yeah. that there is still this mantra of we need growth. Uh, the UK government came up with its food strategy recently and the top line was this will grow the economy. So why is there still this pushback and how do you get the ideas that you're, we're discussing here today actually into the political sphere so it has an impact? Yeah, those are all, <laughs> all very good questions. There was a point where the prosperity without growth work came out of my time time on the UK Sustainable Development Commission, where I was economics commissioner. And I remember sitting down with officials in the Treasury at that point in time. And Jonathan Porritt, who chaired the, the SDC, and I had agreed that, we, that it was a good time to revisit this idea of limits to growth and, and the growth paradigm and its potential conflict with meeting environmental goals. I sat down, I had a meeting with a, a Treasury advisor very early on in that process. And it was really interesting, the timing of it, because basically it was around about 2007, 2008. And, and they kind of, at that point, they were thinking, we've got growth licked. We know how to do growth. We've got it all. And at one point, Gordon Brown, who was at that point chancellor, and then a year or so later, prime minister, turned around at one point and said, this is the longest period of sustained growth in 200 years. This was 2008, remember? So <laughs> it was just before, you know, the shit hit the fan. And we were looking at a very, very different situation. But the interesting thing that the advisor said to me at that point was, I think, Tim, because we know, you know, everything's settled down. We're in the great transition or whatever it was called. I can't remember the great stabilization. Um, we've got growth licked. We've got inflation licked. We've got jobs licked. Everything's going really good this is quite a good time to sit down and think the growth paradigm and whether it is something we want to go on forever because we've got this reflective space where we can think about it. And then, of course, that might have been an inflection point, but 
events, dear boy, events. And, and the next year, we were in a totally different situation. Growth had gone away. Everybody wanted growth gap back again. And they wanted growth back again for a very particular reason, that our economies and our society, the way that we organize work, the way that we organize government, the way that we do policy, is all dependent on this idea of growth. The financial markets depend on the idea of growth. And so suddenly, with growth going away with the financial crisis in 2009, policy across the world was really scrabbling to get growth back again because we were not in a position to live in a society without growth. And we're still not, to be honest. The, the response to the financial crisis was fascinating because at first it was... Keynesian. It was government comes in, it spends lots of money, it underwrites financial markets, it buys up assets, it pumps money into the economy. And then, of course, the result of that was a rise in public debt, which began to scare politicians. And in response to that scare, which was totally overblown on the basis of actually false evidence, as it turns out in retrospect, the response was austerity, which we lived under for almost a decade which withdrew social services, which took away social welfare, which undermined healthcare systems, which left a whole swathe of the population disenfranchised and left us totally unprepared for the next event, which of course was the pandemic. So from this piece of this short period of luxury where we might have been able to question the growth-based paradigm and to do something differently in economics, we were thrown into a succession of events, which if we'd prepared earlier, we might have got through without, without so much damage. But actually the damage of that 12 years since the financial crisis has been enormous, not just in economic terms, but in social terms, and of course in environmental terms. And even taking our eye off the ball of things like the peace dividend that might have put us in a better relationship with Russia has all been lost because we have not been able to think under the tailwinds of so much chaos unleashed by a growth-based system gone wrong. So, of course, it's terrifying for politicians to think about it because they don't know how to think about it. And in a sense, 50 years ago, when the Club of Rome, one of the key messages that came to me of the Club of Rome report was their discussion of system dynamics was not that you're going along a path and it's a growth-based path, but don't worry because you can choose to do something different and have another path. It was that you're going along a path, you're on a growth-based path, you're locked into that path. Everything is moving towards that point of overshoot. And the closer you get to it, the harder it is to change. And that prediction is absolutely what we've seen over the last 12 years. So difficult to move off that path. So Kate, how do we start to move off that path without chaos? And we've mentioned a lot here about the UK, the EU, developed countries, but obviously there's also developing countries, emerging markets who are still struggling to come out of the COVID crisis and then were suggesting you, you can't grow either. So how do we move this forward in without causing chaos? First of all, I'm going to push back on the idea that there are developed countries because I don't think there are any. <laughs> and I know it's a label that we use and, it, and it, it's a shorthand for talking about high income countries, but I think it's really important that if we... So we've taken the donut concept and downscaled it to 150 nations. It's a fantastic website online that anyone can go and look at their country. And if you look at all the high income countries, every single one is massively overshooting its share of planetary boundaries. 
So I invite everybody, challenge everybody to say, take that word developed country or advanced country out of your vocabulary because I can't see a single one. There is nothing developed or advanced about overshooting planetary boundaries. So I will also say, let's look at how countries are in overshoot. And it is the high income countries. And so that is where the, the pressure is first and fast to, to, to change course. And let's move away from, are we growing endlessly or not, to this is the fundamental metrics of the 21st century. Each nation needs to transform. So a very low-income country like Malawi actually has massive human deprivation and isn't overshooting its share of pressure on the planetary boundaries at all. So they've got a really interesting, unprecedented journey. How are they going to meet the needs of all people for the first time without overshooting planetary boundaries in the way that every nation before them has done? And that is an unprecedented developmental journey. And it's going to be about investing in renewable energy systems. It's going to be creating a far more circular economy. And of course they need and, and have a claim to huge assistance to make that possible so they don't repeat the patterns from the past. Middle-income countries have a double whammy challenge that they've got to meet people's needs for the first time. There's a lot of deprivation at the same time as coming back within planetary boundaries. And I'm talking about countries like China, like Egypt, um, many middle emerging economies. That's an unprecedented journey. And then the high-income countries. We're sitting in, in Belgium right now. I'm from the UK. Every single high-income nation has an unprecedented journey. No country has done this before to sustain well-being for its people, in fact, to, to do the right thing and meet the well-being of all of its residents because it's incredible the deprivation that we know lies in the midst of our own nations while massively coming back within planetary boundaries. None of this has been done before. And we have to start by recognizing that last century's economic theories and government policies and business designs and lifestyles, none of them were designed to solve for this. So we'd be crazy, foolish to think that they were going to solve this. We need new theories and policies and business model designs and ways of living and eating and shopping and traveling and investing and divesting and protesting that are fit for our times. And, and I'm saying this, I'm just pulling right back because it's really easy to get caught in the immediacy of what about the cost of living right now in Ukraine and this and that. We'll never solve if we always start from the immediate crisis around us because there'll always be immediate crises around us. And I actually wanted to go back, Tim, and ask you, you were saying in, in before 2008, there was this moment where growth was chugging along and we is the government's thought we had this sorted and growth and what's not to like the system's working and and it's just a, a genuine question did it feel that there was a possibility to question growth like should what what is it what's to question yeah no that in a way that was the point of that conversation with the advisor it's because we've got it all under control that maybe now we've got a little bit of space where we can think about what mm. we might do differently and what a, a different economy might look like so it was that and that was the nature of that i wouldn't say that was prevalent across government. I think that would be an overstatement. But that particular conversation inside Treasury at that time was prepared to put that idea of the growth paradigm under the spotlight, or at least it seemed to be. To take up your point about the economics that we have being in, they're not fit, it's not fit for purpose because it isn't fit for those 21st century problems that we find ourselves faced with. And to an extent, I think, the task that the, the, the Club of Rome put in front of society to think differently about the economy is still the task. It's still mm. to create that economics that's fit for purpose. 
and to do it in a way that is not blinded by dogma, that's not blinded by the mantra of growth or the myth of growth, that, that makes the time in spite of the crises, as you're saying, Kate, to look again from the beginning and to ask the question, how do we organize the relationships between the people who work, the people who own assets, the financial markets that control that relationship, the government that creates policy? And to do that, to build that up again in a way that fits that vision of meeting needs within planetary boundaries. And it's a complex task precisely because you have to go beyond that vision. You have to delve into the mechanics of a system that's broken. You have to pull out the broken pieces, the relationships in the financial market, and say, how on earth do we fix these so that they are now consistent with a donut economics? What is the financial market for a donut economics? And that's a process that, that involves, that, that it requires us to bring people along with it. And it requires us to create a space, a safe space to some extent, for conversation about the economics of that new economy. And I think, Sandrine, that's very much what you're trying to do with the mm. Club of Rome, is to create this safe space where these conversations can take place between different actors. You've had the event in Brussels, you spoke to people in the European Parliament yesterday. To finish, start finishing up, I, I wondered in terms of, of vocabulary, what, how should we be talking about this so it feels like a safe space? In the past, we've talked about degrowth, for example, which has definitely divided people into different camps. Dennis Meadows, one of the authors of the, the Limits to Growth report last night, talked about the mature um, economies. How do you talk about this to, to have an open conversation that brings people in rather than putting their backs up and dividing people? It's interesting you should say that because we talked a lot about language actually with the members of the European Parliament yesterday. And it's something that I've also been speaking about a lot with the cabinet of Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission and others within the commission. We all realize, and in particular also in the Club of Rome, that the fact that we're still, as Kate so rightly said, talking about this means that somehow we missed a trick. We know that part of that is we didn't have the leaders, and we still don't, who are ready to actually do what Tim is saying, which is have those very difficult conversations and start to unpack the tensions that we were just talking about between high-income countries and low-income countries, but also the tensions within a country. We have in the United States the highest inequality gap we've ever had, and we don't talk about the poverty in the US or the poverty in high-income countries. So first we need to understand what type of language should we be using, and clearly this misconception that's been said so clearly this morning as we've been talking around growth. What does growth mean? Growth is translated into an addiction. It's a real addiction of people to thinking that actually by growing an economy, which by the way, for the moment, the way in which the economy functions, we are completely as people disassociated from. That economy no longer reflects the lives and livelihoods of people. If you can fire 10,000 people and all of a sudden your shares go up, what reflection of that is of people's lives and livelihoods and the fact that you're actually creating a huge unemployment issue? Or the fact that we actually are saying time and time again that we have the greatest health issues, not only from the pandemic itself, but mental health, suicide rates. So we know that our economy is broken. And so how do you describe that to people? I think actually, 
And this is partly what we were speaking about to the members of parliament, but we are also very much wanting to do in the way in which we describe this to citizens through a greater outreach, actually through different gatherings that we can have at the club. So not just trying to have those high-end, high-level discussions. One is that mature society, which I do very much like from Dennis, which is that if we are truly going to be a mature society, let's look at a 21st century society to the points that were made, not try to continue to patch up an economic system that was built in a very different time, that no longer at all reflects the times of today and the need to constantly think through chaos. Because we will have to think about what are those short-term levers as we move into long-term systems change? And how do we ensure that as we're looking at the food crisis in Ukraine and also the um, energy crisis, which is having a ricochet effect in terms of prices, but also obviously in terms of access to food and poverty in Africa right now. How do we ensure that we don't just have a knee-jerk reaction and go back to building LNG terminals? How do we ensure that we don't actually just try to somehow shift our food value chains rather than looking at local production for local consumption? Those are the new words of the economy. And they shouldn't be new. That should have been the fundamental basis for our economy. Instead, we've got a financialization of the economy that's totally disassociated from people. We've got production that is predominantly outside of Europe rather than localized. And the same with Africa, because we've commodified, actually, most products from Africa. And all it is is about trade deficits rather than about feeding people, because we're not even giving access to food in those countries. How can we actually say that today's economy works? And so I think this coming back to addiction and, and actually speaking to people, and, and yesterday, Bob Constanza, another great ecological economist and member of the Club of Rome, said it so clearly. The therapy is not to just speak about the addiction, but actually to understand how people are living that addiction. What does that mean for them? And I'll close with this. We have before us the moment where we have just gone through the greatest transformation during this COVID time. It was difficult, it was hard, but people actually, most people, did have to think about what was most essential in their lives. And this is the moment to tap into that subconsciousness. So what we said yesterday is to the members of parliament and what we continue to say to decision makers, please don't use the same language. This is a time to bring in new thinking, new language. This is the 21st century. We already are transforming. We're in the midst of the greatest transformation. Let's continue that transformation and show to people that actually we can have greater well-being on this planet within the planetary boundaries. That's a great point to, to end on, Sandrine. And I think the whole discussion today has given us plenty of uh, food for thought. So thank you very much, Sandrine, Tim and Kate for being with us today. This has been a special episode of World Review from the New Statesman in partnership with the Club of Rome and the BMW Foundation to mark 50 years since the publication of the Limits to Growth report. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and rate us and leave us a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Philippa Nuttall. Thanks for listening and until next time. <laughs>